as the ushers are coming to take the offering, I'm reminded that you know part of the reason we do that each week is because God commands us to be good stewards, which is to say that we are to remember that everything that we have comes from Him and that we are to be diligent in having a plan for giving back to Him the, that which He's placed in our hands and how to utilize it well. Now, I often think about my dad when I think about this moment in the service where we pass the plates because I grew up in church and my dad did retail sales, which means he worked on commission. And so his pay varied from paycheck to paycheck. And so he taught me about stewardship without ever saying a word really in that every week when the baskets were passed, he would... Uh, get out the checkbook and write a check because he wanted to each week uh, give based on what he had made that week. And he knew it, that varied each week. And so the easiest way to keep track of that was just to each week bring the checkbook, write it, put it in the plate. And, you know, he never said to me what he was doing, but I watched him every week do that of my entire life. And I just, I, I am so thankful for that. And when we pass the plates here uh, every week, I, I often go back to that moment and think about how my dad taught me about what stewardship is and how God, we, we give God our first. We give God our best, right? Not our last. And uh, what a good reminder that was for me. So, you know, as we, so as we do that today, we're reminded that we are really partaking in an act of worship as God's people have always gathered together to give back to God. Uh, it's always been a part of the gathering of the people of God. And we do that because God does work in us through it. So we're glad that you've joined us this morning. Let me pray for us. If the plates are still going, don't worry about it. Just pray with your eyes open. That's fine. That's allowed. You can do that. So let's pray. Lord, we come to your word and we're reminded what the psalmist says when he says, that you have said, seek my face. And then his right response and our response in our hearts today is, your face we will seek. So help us to remember that whether we're taking an offering or we are listening to your word, submitting ourselves to it, or whether we're singing praises to you, that our desire is not purely intellectual, it's not emotional, it is to bring our whole selves to you so that we might see you, we wanna know you, we want to know you as you are. So help us. Would you shape us today, not just into the individuals you want us to be, but into the church you want us to be? Living life together, following you, making disciples. Help us to do that faithfully. Help us to remember that we are called to sacrifice for one another. That we are people sent out together with the good news that Jesus has been crucified and then resurrected so that we can have life. I pray that you'd shape us into your image today, collectively as well as individually. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you got your Bible, open with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2. So in 1979, Bob Dylan released one of his most popular albums. Any Bob Dylan fans in the house? Anyone remember what, he, what album he released in 1979? Slow Train Coming. I think I heard somebody say it. Slow Train Coming. And on that album, there was a pretty popular song called You Gotta Serve Somebody. Anybody familiar with that song? There you go. Fantastic. Good. So uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a fan of the song. Here's how it goes. It opens like this. It says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, for my money, the best line in the whole thing, and you'll see why, is this. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side, but you're going to have to serve somebody, right? So Dylan had made a profession of faith in Christ at that point in his life. And 
And he's writing about this idea that all people worship something. Everybody serves someone. Uh, and you can't avoid it, right? You, you might serve you know, this God or that God, you know, but you are going to serve something or someone, which is a you know, great concept. And, and as Dylan's singing about it, he's saying that on Saturday Night Live. He's saying it in a number of venues. And interestingly enough, you may be familiar with that song, but you may not be familiar that John Lennon of Beatles fame wrote a response song to that song. Did you know that? He wrote a song called You Gotta Serve Yourself. He did. He called Dylan's song an embarrassment, which is a really bold thing to say about somebody else's work, right? Like your, your work, you're embarrassing. I'm going to do something now, right? And so he wrote a song called You Gotta Serve Yourself. And the chorus of that song goes like this. It says, you gotta serve yourself. Ain't nobody gonna do it for you. You gotta serve yourself. Ain't nobody gonna do it for you. Well, you may believe in devils and you may believe in lords, but you're gonna have to serve yourself. It's an interesting response, right? It's not uncommon. This is the way the world responds to the claim that God has authority over us. Pretty typical response. It's not shocking. The most interesting question about Lennon's song is not actually like why would he write such a song? There's a pretty obvious reason why people write such songs. The most interesting question is what's the result of believing in what that song says? What happens to a person or a people, a group of people, who believe that God has no authority. You know, Lennon didn't believe God existed and therefore it was ridiculous to him that Dylan would say something uh, as perhaps for those of us who believe in God as what seems as patently obvious as you're either gonna serve the Lord or you're gonna serve someone, right? So make your choice, which seems like an obvious thing to some, but to Lennon who doesn't believe God exists, right? You know the song Imagine, relatively, you know, an atheist anthem, essentially, right? Imagine God didn't exist. There was no heaven. There was no hell. These things weren't real. That's, that's Lenin's worldview. And because he believes that, it, it's completely, as he said it, an embarrassment to put forward the idea that you have to serve anyone other than yourself. Your highest ambition, your highest aim, your highest calling, the thing that matters most is that you would serve yourself because nobody else is going to serve you. There is no God on high who's going to show you favor or serve you. You've got to take care of it yourself. And of course, if you've got to take care of it yourself, then what you serve is yourself and your own desires and, and thoughts about the trajectory of your life. So it's an interesting juxtaposition, right? That, that one song is written in response to the next. Well, as we turn our attention... As we turn our attention back to David's life, we were in this series on David where we've been looking at different moments in his life, different seasons, and we see sort of snapshots of the way that God was preparing him to be king and then how he lived as king. And we're, we're understanding, like, what does God do uh, when he chooses a king? What does that look like? And what we're going to see today is that as we turn the corner in David's life to the season we're going to look at now, we're going to see that the, the question the scriptures are going to invite us to ask today is, what happens to a group of people when they reject the authority of God? What happens to a group of people when they reject the authority of God? Now, let me tell you how we, how we get there, right? So you, you know that when we started this series, we said a couple things. We said, we're going to see David's life through a prism, if you will. And sometimes when we look at what we're going to see is that David's a great example for us, or perhaps he's a bad example, but we're going to see David as some form of example about the kind of king we should be or the kind of way we shouldn't wield authority. 
We also said that one of the things David serves to do is to point us forward towards Jesus so that when we see David, we see a foreshadowing of the kind of savior, the kind of king that Jesus was going to be. So even though David is, is one king, he points us to a true and better king. He points us to Jesus, right? And so we, we know that those are two things that take place in the stories of David's life. But we said one third thing that you may not remember at this point, and that's okay. We said that one of the realities that, that we're going to see in David's life is that he is coming along at a point in the story of the entire Bible where what has taken place back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, so we're like a whole book removed from that now, but way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God's people didn't have a king. And they, they had... Well, they did have a king. It just wasn't a human king, right? Who was their king? God was their king, right? And they recognized that they were not like any of the other nations because other nations had kings. They didn't have one. And at some point, they came to Samuel, who was the prophet, and they said, put a king over us. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations around us. We want to be just like them. Give us a king. And Samuel, of course, declares to them, this is a bad idea. You don't want a king. Your king is God. He is all the king you need. And their response is, no, still, give us a king. And so God speaks to Samuel and says, go ahead. Go ahead and give them what they desire. And, but give them a warning with it. And so the warning becomes, essentially, your kings are going to rule over you harshly. They are going to fail and fall again and again. You will regret that you have asked for an earthly king. Nonetheless, I'll give you what you desire. And so God does. And from 1 Samuel chapter 8, what we learn is even the best kings, like David, who's pretty good, even the best human kings represent a rejection of God's authority over his people. And so that's what we, we, we are reminded, the interpretive center, if you will, of this, of this passage that we're going to look at. It's very central message to us is not so much, hey, David became king, but he had to wait a while, right? Or David became king, but he had to be trained through trials. Or God anoints kings by looking at their heart. That's how he chooses his kings. And those are all things we've seen so far in David, yes? Yeah, we've seen all those things in David. Well, today, he backs us up. And what we're going to see is a lot of political game playing that are going to take place in the chapters we look at. We're going to see a lot of uh, thrusts at power, people who are trying to make their way to the throne to get authority. We're going to see a lot of really messed up stuff, essentially, is what's going to happen. And the reason that we see those things that get recorded in Scripture, for instance, is because God is taking us back in this section of text to remind us what happens when we try and put any other king over us than him. This is what happens to a people. He's essentially saying to us, this is what happens to a people when they try and take God's authority out from over them and they replace it with their own authority or some other authority. That's the big idea here in the passage we'll look at today. You with me? All right, awesome. So let's catch ourselves up in the story. Let's see where we are. And let's read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. Verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, they say this. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Okay, so that's verse 1. Now, after this is how it began. What's happened is Saul has died in battle, and now it looks like David, who's been anointed to be king, is going to finally become king. And let's follow what happens. Verse 2. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him and everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. 
When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So, so far, so good, right? David's beginning to ascend to the throne. But watch what happens next. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So here's where we are in the story. If, if you didn't follow, there's a lot of names, right? And let me highly recommend Ner as a name for your next child because that's such a good one. Or Ishbosheth, also strong, all right? So you get all these names, but here's what's happening in the story, right? Is David, Saul has died and David's been anointed to be king. And so he goes to his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. If you know the nation of Israel, there are 12 tribes. And he goes to the tribe of Judah because he prays and God tells him to do that. And he goes and they anoint him to be king. So far, so good, right? But then Abner, who's going to be the kingmaker in our story, he's going to be the political navigator, the one who's looking for power and authority at every turn. He's a very interesting character in the scriptures. Abner takes Ishbosheth and sets him up on the throne. Now, Abner had been Saul's general, the head of his army. He had a lot of military clout. And so Abner is well known. And so now the, all the other tribes, the non Judah tribes, all begin to follow Ishbosheth, who is the son of Saul. In fact, the only surviving son of Saul. And so we have a divided kingdom now. We have two rival factions, two claims to the throne, right? The true Game of Thrones is right here in the scriptures. And so we have, we have these uh, rival claims to the throne. And, you know, again, We've been tracking with David and he's running from Saul in the wilderness prior to this and now his trials are over. Saul has been killed in battle and you would think he gets to become king and again, how long does he have to wait to become king? The full fulfillment of God's promise. Seven and a half more years. Seven and a half more years. He will rule over part of the nation of Israel, one small part, but not the entire nation. And what a good reminder to us that David's story here reminds us that waiting, causing us to wait, is one of God's great sanctifying tools. Yes? Causing us to wait is one of God's great sanctifying tools. And so David is going to wait longer. And it's a little bit less intense on the persecution side. But nonetheless, he's still waiting for God's promise to come to fulfillment for him. So that's where we find ourselves in the story at this point. Uh, but again, what we're going to see in this waiting period for David until the full kingdom comes to him, the realities that we're going to see come into play are going to come into play because of what we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The people of Israel have rejected God, and this is what happens. So we're going to see four consequences that occur when a people, a group of people, a society, if you will, reject God's authority over them. Now, you might quickly draw some parallels to the society, type of society we're reading about, and to our own society, yes? With the rise of secularism, uh, it is 
relatively easy to see that there has been a pretty broad rejection of God's authority over us as a people, as a nation. Let me also say, let's not just point the finger out. Let's remind ourselves that within the American evangelical church, we are experiencing, I think like at no other time, a watered down gospel, a theological anemia, right? And by that, I mean just not teaching rich, true theology, just soft, soft theology, Right? And a man-centeredness rather than a God-centeredness. Both that and the rise of a secular worldview are both indicators that we live among a people who have, who have rejected the authority of God. So let's ask ourselves, what are the consequences of that? And let's ask ourselves, what might we do about it? What are the consequences? And what might we do about it? So consequence number one. When a group of people reject the authority of God over them, the first and greatest consequence is a loss of moral authority. It's a loss of moral authority. Uh, it's, it doesn't take a genius to see this, right? So it's a, it's a pretty basic reality. that If we believe that a, there's a morality that is prescribed for us, a, a version of right and wrong that is given to us by God on high, that, that those claims about good and bad, they have authority over us, Yes. If God is the one who declares good, then he's the one that declares bad, and we are underneath him and therefore have to respond to that. But when we reject God's authority over us, what we've also lost then is our moral moorings, our moral bearings. We have taken out from over us the very one who can declare to us, this is right and this is wrong. So the, all that we're left with is moral subjectivity, which means that if I say this is right and you say it's wrong, who gets to decide? And then everything becomes a political battle. Everything becomes a power play because at the center of this society, at this group of people, there is no longer a moral compass which is, mute, which is agreed upon by all because it comes down from on high. Rather, so here's what that means. What that means is you can never say anything is morally required. You can only say it is morally suggested. And we may even broadly agree on things that we shouldn't kill each other. Like we may morally agree that that seems like a right thing and we'll all agree on that. But that authority doesn't come from anyone higher than us. It just simply comes from our agreement, right? And so if someone were to step up in that sort of milieu, in that sort of environment and say, well, I don't agree, who gets to tell him he's wrong? Well, it's always going to be majority rules, right? Rather than be, so it, it comes down to a battle of political wills rather than actually coming down to this is what has been prescribed for us. And that loss of moral authority is really important because God's word honestly, in so many places, when it prescribes a morality for us, is not complex. We make things in a secular society really complex that God has made very simple. This is right, and this is wrong, and you should obey, rather than having to try and navigate all the inner workings and thoughts of every segment of society and their opinion about some certain subject matter. The loss of moral authority, I think, is the greatest consequence of a rejection of the authority of God. It's massively important. It has generational effects and impacts. Now, where do we see that in the text? Well, we just read about it. So God, because his people had rejected his authority over them, in those first 11 verses, what did we read? We read that David became king of Judah and Ishbosheth became king over the rest of the nation of Israel. Why is there a battle for the throne? Why, is there, why is, are there divided factions and loyalties? because they wanted an earthly king in the first place. If the people had never said, we want a, we want a human king, 
if they had been satisfied with God as their king and not rejected his authority over them, do we ever have this situation? No, it never comes about because God is king and no one rivals him. And so we are in this situation where Ishbosheth has certain tribes and David has certain tribes and that there are divided loyalties and the nation is going to struggle underneath that and there's going to be all manner of harm that's going to come from that. We're about to see it in a moment as we read forward. That all comes because they've rejected the authority of God and therefore they won't listen to what he said. Who has God declared should be king next? He's declared that David should be king next. And Ishbosheth coming to the throne is a rejection of God's word. It's a rejection of what God has declared should happen next. So let's look further and let's see what Abner does. So we just saw that Abner is the one who puts, <clears throat> who puts Ishbosheth on the throne. <clears throat> and if Abner puts him on the throne, then who's really in charge? Abner's really in charge, right? Abner's really the strong man that's behind the puppet government of Ishbosheth. And so look at what happens now. We're going to fast forward because I want you to see something. Up to this point, you could read the story and you could say, well, perhaps Abner just didn't know. Perhaps Abner did not understand that God had declared that David was to be king. And it made sense to take one of Saul's sons, he had served Saul faithfully, to take one of his sons and say, no, you're going to be the next king. But really what we find out is that what Abner is doing is just a power play. Abner just wants to maintain his authority and his power and his position. He had been a general in Saul's army in charge of them. And now he doesn't want to lose that because he had been essentially against David when he was under Saul. And now he doesn't want to come underneath David. But there's a change that happens because Abner's an impulsive man, an impetuous man. And he does something that's a little bit less than, um, a little bit less than reputable. And when he does it, Ishbosheth calls him out. And he says, hey, what are you up to? Are you trying to kind of make a grab at the throne here? And Abner's response is this in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 8 with me. So we're skipping forward a little bit. It says, Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Okay, now what did we just learn about Abner? We learn that he anointed Ishbosheth to be king, and he thinks, what did he say? I'm the one who has kept David from conquering you. Did you catch that? So he sees himself as pretty important in this whole equation. But then what did we hear next? I am going to now go over to David's side, and I'm going to make sure that what God promised him, that he'd be on the throne, will actually come to pass. Oh, so wait a minute, Abner. That means when you anointed Ishbosheth king and put him on the throne of Israel, you knew that God had told David he was supposed to be king? That's exactly right. Abner already knew what God had said and he didn't care. He didn't care until it was expedient for him for David to be on the throne because he was tired of Ishbosheth. You guys follow? So, what we've learned is that Abner becomes sort of, he typifies the whole nation. He becomes an example of the thinking of the whole nation. It doesn't matter then what God has said. 
And so we end up with a loss of moral authority. There's no one to say Ishbosheth is king or David is king. We disregard all that, and the result is always infighting and factions and a society that breaks down because ideas have consequences. You know that, right? Ideas have consequences. You cannot reject the idea that God has authority over a people. You cannot reject that and then also maintain a moral compass. Those two things cannot go hand in hand, or at least you can't maintain, uh, you can't maintain a, a moral absolute. You can, only have, you can only have moral suggestions, not moral requirements. It is impossible to, to have those two things married together. Let me give you an example of this. About a month ago in the state of New York, the state legislature passed an overwhelming, a sweeping piece of legislation that essentially allows for abortion up until the moment of birth. It was tragic in its consequences. It will continue to be tragic in its consequences. But that is not the most shocking thing. What's shocking is if you've seen the video of what took place in the, in the legislature when that bill was passed. Because in the state legislature of New York, after passing legislation that condemned unborn children to die for generations, they jumped and hollered and hooted and howled and, and sang their own praises and clapped and were overjoyed that they had been able to exercise their political power and authority to bring this to pass. It was shocking in its nature absolutely devastating indictment of what happens when you reject the authority of God over you. You become a people who have so little perspective and who reject moral authority so completely that you can celebrate the loss of unborn lives. The next consequence that we see here in our text is that people become pawns. People become pawns for power brokers of the day. When we reject God's authority over us, not only do we lose moral authority, we also become a people who don't look at others as those who have dignity as image bearers of God, all people, but we begin to look at people through the lens of what, how we can exercise authority over them or get them to do what we want them to do. My guess is you found this to be true, right? I mean, all of us at some point, have, at some points in our lives, are not operating under God's authority in the way that we should. And when that happens, to be frank, don't we find that rather than praying for others, loving others, looking to serve others, that we find people to be expedient to the, to the ends that we want to accomplish through them. And if they can't, if they can't do for me what I need done, then they, they don't have value to me. I don't have time for them. I don't have energy for them. I only have time for those that can get me where I want to go. That's the definition of people becoming pawns rather than people being image bearers of God whom we recognize we are called to serve and care for. That's what happens. And you can see why, right? Because when you reject, when you reject God's authority over you, then you no longer have someone over you telling you your work is to serve others in the way that I serve. As king of the universe, as creator of the whole thing, I spend time serving the, my creatures that I've created in love. The greatest demonstration of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. God has served humanity through the sacrifice of his son. And when you, when you don't reject the authority of God, then you have one over you who declares, if I've done this, then you also must do it. You must treat people as image bearers with dignity. You must listen and love and serve. But once you reject that, people become pawns in a game. They become means to your ends 
That's essentially what takes place here in our text. When we look at chapter 2, now we're going to go back to chapter 2 and pick up the story at verse 12. So David and Ishbosheth are now you know, rival factions for the throne. And here's what we find happening in verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, so this is before Abner has gone over to David's side. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. So essentially what's happening there, you, don't, you probably don't know the geography. Everybody know where Gibeon is in Israel? I'm sure you're very familiar. So they've gone, they're basically moving towards David's territory. That's what's happening. They're going to attack David. They think they've gained enough strength. They're going to try and take this final tribe, and Ishbosheth can be king of everything. That's what's taking place. So David's going to send his men out, and they're going to defend David's kingdom. So picking up in verse 13, and Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent, get this now, each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which essentially means field of swords, field of blades, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So here's what's interesting about that story as it pertains to what happens to people who reject the authority of God, right? So you've got these two rival factions and they gather to fight a battle and you would think that's pretty normal. That's kind of what happens in these things, right? But what happens first is not normal. This is not the normal way to fight a battle. Abner and Joab, the two commanders of the armies, decide, you know what we ought to do before we fight? We ought to have some entertainment. Let's have people sacrifice their lives so that we can be entertained, so they send 12 soldiers each. And this story, make no doubt about it, is put into the word of God so that you and I would see absolutely how ridiculous the consequences are of people rejecting the authority of God. Because once that happens, all kinds of craziness happens. And this, no doubt about it, is not made to be a heroic story about 12 men who fight valiantly and bravely in a battle for their king. No, this is meant to be a story that goes, look how ridiculous it gets when people start worshiping one another and stop worshiping God. This is what happens. Nobody wins. Who won of the 24 soldiers that went out to fight a battle? Nobody. That's exactly what you and I are meant to see when we read this story. We're supposed to go, wait, what? So they all go out, they fight a battle, they all stab each other to death and fall down dead. Who's winning? No one. But Joab and Abner are entertained and then they start their battle. The point is this, friends. These 24 men become pawns in a game. How undignified. How disparaging. This isn't men who are like, we're going to fight for the king. This is men who are subjected to death for the sake of entertainment. That's what this story is. The battle is going to go on. People, more people are going to die in a more typical way in the battle. All because the people wanted a king that wasn't God. All because the people wanted a king that wasn't God. If I had time, I'd tell you later in the story in chapter 3, you're going to see Michael, Saul's daughter, who was married to David, and she's going to become a pawn in the game, essentially, where David, she'd been married off to somebody else, and David brings her back, but he only does it because he wants her uh, to basically solidify his claim to the throne of Israel. So Michael 
becomes a pawn in the game. I mean, just again and again. All these people who don't have power, they become pawns in the game of those who do have power. That's what takes place. Consequence number three. So consequence number one, loss of moral authority. Consequence number two, people become pawns rather than image bearers. And consequence number three is that revenge replaces forgiveness. Revenge replaces forgiveness. So again, moving forward a little bit, you heard the name Joab in that last story. Joab is David's nephew, and he's going to become a thorn in David's side. After that whole scene with the 24 soldiers killing each other, the battle happens. And in that battle, Abner, the commander of the Israelite people, he kills Joab's brother in that battle. And it's a, it's a clean fight. It's a fair fight. Uh, Asahel keeps chasing him and won't let up. <clears throat> and because he does, Abner tries to get him to stop. And he won't stop. And so Abner ends up killing him in battle. Well, Joab, of course, is, as his brother, doesn't take that lightly. And here's what happens next. So look with me at chapter 3, verse 26. This is after now Abner has, is saying, I'm going to come over to your side, David. And Joab hears about it. And he's not a fan of this idea because Abner killed his brother. It says, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. So what we see is that when God, uh, when God is rejected, people will find it very hard to forgive. Now David is willing to forgive Abner and bring him into his fold, bring him onto his team, if you will. But Joab is unwilling, in spite of the fact that Abner didn't really kill his brother in an unfair way, he's going to seek revenge. Joab, what you and I are going to find as the story of David progresses, is going to be a thorn in David's side throughout his entire life. So much so that when David prepares, to, when David is dying on his deathbed, he pulls Solomon, his son, in. He says, when you become king, kill Joab. Don't trust him. So even David utilizes Joab for the time. But Joab is this wild guy who at every turn does whatever he wants to do. Again, why is that? Because the people have rejected the authority of God over them. And at every turn this what happens. So Joab becomes the epitome of what happens among a group of people who reject the authority of God is that they, know, they have loosed themselves from the ability to forgive. You see, the only reason we forgive is because we believe that God has forgiven us. And when we believe that, we've been given a resource and a command to forgive. Not a suggestion, not a moral suggestion, a moral what, church? Command to forgive as we have been forgiven. And that's the power, that's the strength, that's the ability to forgive. It comes from believing that there is a God who has forgiven you. And if that has taken place, then you then have the strength and the ability and the resource to forgive. And when a people reject 
the authority of God, they also loose themselves from the, the very thing they need to be able to forgive. And the only thing that can come in its place is revenge. And so a society like that becomes a society where you only find cycles of violence and revenge, violence and revenge, violence and revenge over and over and over. I'll let you measure our own society against that standard and see whether we demonstrate a cycle of forgiveness and mercy or whether we demonstrate a cycle of violence and revenge. Now, there is a fourth consequence, and I'm just going to only mention it briefly, and it's actually a positive consequence. Now, you might think, how could there be a positive consequence to rejecting God's authority? Well, here's the only positive consequence we can identify, and and here it is. It's that when when people in that kind of society actually do obey God, it stands out and makes an impact. When people who live in a society where God's authority has been rejected, individuals within it, actually choose to, uh, to say God has authority over me and I will live according to his commands, it stands out and it makes an impact. We see that with David because his response to Abner's death pleases the people at large. And why it pleases them is because he mourns over Abner's death because he sees it as an unjust death. And when he mourns over it, the people say, this is a wise and good king. This is someone who's filled with compassion and mercy and not revenge. He was willing to receive Abner, but Joab was not. Right? Now you can ask the question, should David have done more to Joab in the moment? Quite possibly. Right? But the people see it and they, they celebrate it later in the story. And so again, what we see there is just very simply that in a society that has rejected God's authority, the kind of person that makes an impact is not the person who works really hard to be relevant in the sense that I, you know, I look like and sound like the society around me. It's the person who makes the simple act of obedience to God's commands. So let me encourage you in this, church family. Never underestimate the power of simple acts of obedience. Never underestimate the power of simple acts of obedience. When you go to work tomorrow, don't underestimate telling the truth as an act of obedience to God. When you go to work tomorrow, don't underestimate being gracious where you could be harsh because you believe in God and his authority is over you. Never underestimate the simple and strong power of simple acts of obedience. Commit yourself to them. Find what an impact you'll make. So then let's close by saying this. I think we live in a society marked by a lot of the consequences that we've just identified, and I think we experience those consequences because we've rejected the authority of God. But again, as always, our first finger pointing shouldn't be out, it should be back in, right? Because there are indicators that the church of Christ has left behind the authority of God in some ways. And let's remind ourselves that the people in this story are not the foreign nations who have rejected the authority of God. Who are they? They're the people of Israel. They are God's chosen ones, as we are God's chosen ones. And they're the ones who have rejected the authority of God. And if they can do it, then certainly we can. So what do we do about in a society like this? I mean, what do we do to make an impact in a society like that? We've, we've just said one thing, which is one, commit ourselves individually to being obedient to God's authority over us, to living as if God's word is true and authoritative, to live in that way. But I would say perhaps even more important, perhaps even more important than our individual commitment to obedience and to letting God's authority be over us is the kind of church we form together. 
Because when Christ came, and again, all of this story is meant to point us to we need a better king than any of these kings. And so all of this is setting us up to see, oh, our true king is coming. Our true king is coming. And when Jesus became king, right, when he came to the earth and died and resurrected and, and, and ascended to the throne at the right hand of the Father, he also established a church for himself, a people for his own pleasure, And he said to them, you will be my ambassadors in the world. You'll be the ones that show the world what I'm like. And when we demonstrate the kind of church that God wants us to be, holding truth graciously, filled with humility, but deeply committed to obedience, when we live out that reality together, not just individually, but together, when we do that, when we form that kind of church, it's a a culture within a larger culture that speaks prophetically to the larger culture. And it says, you may have rejected God's authority. We will show you what it's like to live among a people who do not. We will show you what it's like to live among a people who gladly welcome God's authority. So my encouragement to you is this. It matters. It matters what kind of church we are. And you shape who we are. Every one of you. Perhaps you come each Sunday and you sit on the sidelines, or you think you're sitting on the sidelines, but let me encourage you, you're all in the game. Every single one of us is in the game. Nobody is actually sitting on the We may pull up a chair, but we're pulling it up into the middle of the court. And the ball is in play. And so for all of us, for every single one of us, the way we engage with one another, the way we shape the life that we have together as a church, is our greatest, is really is our greatest instrument to speak prophetically to the culture and say this is what it looks like when a people come together underneath God's authority rather than in rejection of God's authority. And so I'll invite you, come come and join the game. Take your hands out your pockets. Stand up. We'll throw you the ball. You may miss a few shots. This analogy is going way, like, way left. It's the NBA playoffs of God. They're in my head. You get what I'm saying, though. I invite you to, this is who we are is shaped by you. Shaped by you. All right, we're gonna close by singing together. Team, why don't y'all come on up? We need to worship the Lord. Let me pray as they're coming. So Lord Jesus, we do delight in your authority over us, and we pray that in increasing measure, you would make us a church that is pleasing to you. That you would look at us, and that you would say, that is a group of people, that is a church, who loves my authority and wants to obey me. We thank you for your grace because we're going to fall down a lot. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that in Christ, Father, your promise is to continue to give that to us. And we receive it and we know we need it. So help us, strengthen us, even as we sing to you now. What a gift it is from you to us that we can sing to you. We thank you. Hear the praises of your people. Be, be pleased. May it bless your name. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's sing.